Hello and welcome to the HR Sucks podcast, where we'll get down to the good, the bad, and the crap of workplaces today. I'm Katrina Gazarian, your host, and today is a special story time episode. Reading is something I deeply enjoy, and I want to share that experience with you with the hope that you feel positively about yourself and the world around you. On December 23, 1867, on a cotton plantation near Delta, Louisiana, a little girl was born to parents named Owen and Minerva, who were recently freed slaves. That little girl's name was Sarah. She was their fifth child, but their first to be born to a free family. Minerva, the mother, died in 1874 when Sarah was seven years old and Owen passed away the following year, both due to unknown causes, leaving little Sarah an orphan at the age of seven. After her parents' passing, Sarah was sent to live with her sister, Lavinia, and her brother-in-law. The three moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1877, where Sarah picked cotton and was likely employed doing housework, although no documentation exists verifying her employment at the time. At the age of 14, to escape both her oppressive working environment and the frequent mistreatment she endured at the hands of her brother-in-law, Sarah married a man named Moses McWilliam. On June 6, 1885, Sarah gave birth to a daughter, Lilia. In 1888, Sarah and her daughter moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where three of her brothers lived. Sarah found work as a laundress, earning barely more than a dollar a day. She was determined to make enough money to provide her daughter with a formal education. During the 1880s, she lived in a community where ragtime music was developed. She sang at the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church and started to yearn for an educated life as she watched the community of women at her church. As was common among black women of her era, Sarah suffered severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness due to skin disorders and the application of harsh products to cleanse hair and wash clothes. Other contributing factors to her hair loss included poor diet, illnesses, and infrequent bathing and hair washing during a time when most Americans lacked indoor plumbing, central heating, and electricity. Initially, Sarah learned about hair care from her brothers, who were barbers in St. Louis. Around the time of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, she became a commission agent selling products for Annie Malone an African-American hair care entrepreneur, millionaire, and owner of the Poro Company. Sales at the exposition were a disappointment since the African-American community was largely ignored. While working for Malone, who would later become Walker's largest rival in the hair care industry, Sarah began to take her new knowledge and develop her own product line. In July 1905, when she was 37 years old, Sarah and her daughter moved to Denver, Colorado, where she continued to sell products for Malone and develop her own hair care business. 
a controversy developed between Annie Malone and Sarah because Malone accused Sarah of stealing her formula, a mixture of petroleum jelly and sulfur that had been in use for a hundred years. Following her marriage to Charles in 1906, Sarah became known as Madame C.J. Walker. She marketed herself as an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. Her husband, who was also her business partner, provided advice on advertising and promotion. Sarah sold her products door-to-door, teaching other black women how to groom and style their hair. In 1906, Walker put her daughter in charge of the mail-order operation in Denver while she and her husband traveled throughout the southern and eastern United States to expand the business. In 1908, Walker and her husband relocated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they opened a beauty parlor and established Leah College to train hair culturists. As an advocate of black women's economic independence, she opened training programs in the Walker system for her national network of licensed sales agents who earned healthy commission. After Walker closed the business in Denver in 1907, Lilia ran the day-to-day operations from Pittsburgh. In 1910, Walker established a new base in Indianapolis. Lilia also persuaded her mother to establish an office and beauty salon in New York City's growing Harlem neighborhood in 1913. It became a center of African-American culture. In 1910, Walker relocated her businesses to Indianapolis, where she established the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. She initially purchased a house and a factory at 640 Northwest Street. Walker later built a factory, hair salon, and beauty school to train her sales agents and added a laboratory to help with research. She also assembled a staff that included Freeman Ransom, Robert Lee Brokenburr, Alice Kelly, and Marjorie Joyner, among others, to assist in managing the growing company. Many of her company's employees, including those in key management and staff positions, were women. To increase her company's sales force, Walker trained other women to become beauty culturists using the Walker system, her method of grooming that was designed to promote hair growth and to condition the scalp through the use of her products. Walker's system included a shampoo, a pomade stated to help her hair grow, strenuous brushing, and applying iron combs to hair. This method claimed to make lackluster and brittle hair become soft and luxurious. Walker's product line had several competitors, Similar products were produced in Europe and manufactured by other companies in the United States, which included her major rivals, Annie Turnbow Malone's Poro System, from which she derived her original formula and later Sarah Spencer Washington's Apex System. Between 1911 and 1919, during the height of her career, Walker and her company employed several thousand women as sales agents for its products. By 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women. 
dressed in a characteristic uniform of white shirts and black skirts and carrying black satchels, they visited houses around the United States and in the Caribbean, offering Walker's hair pomade and other products packaged in tin containers carrying her image. Walker understood the power of advertising and brand awareness. Heavy advertising primarily in African-American newspapers and magazines. In addition to Walker's frequent travels to promote her products, helped make Walker and her products well-known in the United States. In addition to training in sales and grooming, Walker showed other Black women how to budget, build their own businesses, and encourage them to become financially independent. In 1917, inspired by the model of the National Association of Colored Women, Walker began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. The result was the establishment of the National Beauty Culturist and Benevolent Association of Madam C.J. Walker Agents. Its first annual conference convened in Philadelphia during the summer of 1917 with 200 attendees. The conference is believed to have been among the first national gatherings of women entrepreneurs to discuss business and commerce. During the convention, Walker gave prizes to women who had sold the most products and brought in the most new sales agents. She also rewarded those who made the largest contributions to charities in their communities. Walker's name became even more widely known by the 1920s after her death as her company's business market expanded beyond the United States to Cuba, Jamaica, Haiti, Panama, and Costa Rica. As Walker's wealth and notoriety increased, she became more vocal about her views. In 1912, Walker addressed an annual gathering of the National Negro Business League from the convention floor, where she declared, I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. The following year, she addressed convention goers from the podium as a keynote speaker. She helped raise funds to establish a branch of the YMCA in Indianapolis's Black community, pledging $1,000 to the building fund for Senate Avenue YMCA. Walker also contributed scholarship funds to the Tuskegee Institute. Other beneficiaries included Indianapolis's Flanner House and Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mary McLeod, Bethune's Daytona Education and Industrial School for Negro Girls, which later became Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida. The Palmer Memorial Institute in North Carolina and the Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute in Georgia. Walker was also a patron of the arts. About 1913, Walker's daughter, Lilia, moved to a new townhouse in Harlem, and in 1916, Walker joined her in New York, leaving the day-to-day -day operation of her company to her management team in Indianapolis. In 1917, Walker commissioned Vertner Tandy, the first licensed black architect in New York City and a founding member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity to design her house in Irvington on Hudson, New York. Walker intended for Villa Lawaro, 
which cost $250,000 to build to become a gathering place for community leaders and to inspire other African-Americans to pursue their dreams. She moved into the house in May 1918 and hosted an opening event to honor Emmett J. Scott, at that time, the Assistant Secretary for Negro Affairs of the U.S. Department of War. Walker became more involved in political matters after her move to New York. She delivered lectures on political, economic, and social issues at conventions sponsored by powerful Black institutions. Her friends and associates included Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, and W.E.B. Du Bois. During World War I, Walker was a leader in the Circle for Negro War Relief and advocated for the establishment of a training camp for Black Army officers. In 1917, she joined the Executive Committee of New York Chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP, which organized the silent protest parade on New York City's Fifth Avenue. The public demonstration drew more than 8,000 African Americans to protest a riot in East St. Louis that killed 39 African Americans. Profits from her business significantly impacted Walker's contributions to her political and philanthropic interests. In 1918, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs honored Walker for making the largest individual contribution to help preserve Frederick Douglass's Anacostia House. Before her death in 1919, Walker pledged $5,000, the equivalent of about $77,700 in 2019, to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. At the time, it was the largest gift from an individual that the NAACP had ever received. Walker bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals. Her will directed two-thirds of future net profits of her estate to charity. Walker died on May 25, 1919, from kidney failure and complications of hypertension at the age of 51. At the time of her death, Walker was considered to be the wealthiest African-American woman in America. I had to make my own living and my own opportunity, but I made it. Don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. Get up and make them happen. Madam C.J. Walker. I will catch you all on the next episode of HR sucks. Oh, I am.